Somebody call Alan. Tell him we're waiting for him. Yeah, maybe I thought you should stay. He's probably on the on the on the on the porch. What do they call those things in Florida? What is it? The lanai. He's probably in the lanai under the sun. It's probably seventy-five. So he should be on. I know. No excuse. He should show us the sun too. It'd be nice to see it. Although it's been nice, we've got a couple of sunny days. You should be very grateful. You should. Tell him we're waiting for him. <laughs> Tell him to go on the church calendar on the website and click the link. He did, or just the website slash All right, let us stand and pray, please. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us mankind, the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to under the understanding of the gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of the blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, to be ascribed glory with an unoriginate un Father, and an all-holy, good, life-giving Spirit, now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. 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 Wonderful! Happy anniversary! 27 days. <laughs> it just feels like 27 days. Yeah, we... Uh... We could have done a lot of things today, but yeah, right. But nothing we, better than this. You get nothing, no better options than this. I'm gonna silence my phone before I forget that. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. We are picking up our study of the Book of the Revelation. We are in chapter two, and if memory serves correctly, we are about to read. Um, I thought I was there. It's not there. Number eight. Is it verse eight? That's what I yeah, thought. Yeah. We did smear already, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I was right the first time, then I was wrong. No. Okay. <laughs> We're the Church of Pergamum, so verse 12. Okay. So we've had how many so far? We had, yeah, we had Smyrna. We had Ephesus, right? And what was the first one? Or for Ephesus was the first one. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Okay, very good. All right, so we're on the third of the seven churches. So let's see. Where did we end up reading last time? We decided we're not going to start over every week. So if anybody wants to hide, will not be rewarded for fleeing to the end of the table. <laughs> there we go. Uh, 12 through 17, please. And by the way, before we begin, repeat after me, it is good to be Orthodox. It is good to be Orthodox. <laughs> because 
you know, we are, we are tempted to see our church because we live in an age where there are lots of churches. And even saying that, we have to put like an asterisk to say, can't, there can't be churches in terms, I mean, there can be parishes, congregations. But the, the thing orthodoxy struggles with the most is the idea that there is a division, ongoing divisions within Christianity. And we can't explain it. We can't tidy it up. It messes up everything we do in terms of interaction with whoever we call them, our non-Orthodox brothers and sisters, uh, other denominations, even saying denominations, we can't say it because how can the church be more than one? The church is one. That church has to be united. And yet there's division. So anyway, that being said, um, sadly, much of what um, was known in the time that John is writing this letter is now unknown to the great majority of Christians because they have not, like us, been blessed to be Orthodox. So I want you to think about when you hear things, assume that this is an Orthodox book. Because when you think about it being a book for all Christians, what does it mean to different Christians? We're gonna, we're gonna lose out. We're gonna understand because we're Orthodox, because Orthodoxy is not one of many denominations. We don't say it to pat ourselves on the back. In fact, the opposite we're about to read, which is why I wanted to say this now, we're more liable for the truth because we've been given everything. So it's not a pat on our back. It's actually, as you're going to hear, a little bit of a warning to us. But it is to say that what we've been given is so completely true that we don't want to lose it when we do things like study a book that we could be confused by. Does that make any sense? Okay, good. Because this is going to make a lot more sense to us as Orthodox than it will for those that aren't blessed to have all that. And you're going to see it very quickly in, in these five verses. Okay. And to the angel of the church of Pergamon, right? These things say, He has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your work, you know you well, your Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwelt. But I have a few things against you, because you have you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to the idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, mm -hmm. which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay. So a lot there that looks very mysterious. We're going to find that most of it really is not mysterious at all. Because we're orthodox. Well, let's go through it a little bit, uh, one by one, or part by part. Um, who is speaking, specifically who is speaking? Look in verse 12 for the answer. Which one? The one that heard us. The one who... Look at the quote. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay. 
Anybody remember what we said about that sharp two-edged sword? What does a two-edged sword do? It cuts both ways. Cuts both ways. Okay. When it cuts both ways, it can do damage. What's that? I don't have the red letter. You see the red letter. <laughs> I do. Jesus is talking. Right. Is that what that means? Yes. I had to double check. So we know it's the figure that we saw back in chapter one who had all those descriptions. Remember we said that as we get to each church that he's writing the letter to, he's going to talk about a different part of it and what, what the meaning is. So that two-edged sword we talked back then um, is it cuts both ways. In other words, it can cut to the good. It can be to your detriment if you're not on the right side. Okay. Um, we heard this last Sunday. Yeah, just this past Sunday when St. Simeon holds the Christ child. and He says this child is set for the rise and fall of many. So it's not that Jesus has come to destroy. He has not come to destroy or to condemn. But out of his mouth, his words comes out a two-edged sword. In other words, it's for the good, for those that are on the right side. Those that aren't, it's for their destruction. And it's his words. Remember that. It's, it's his teaching. It's, his, it's, what he's, it's what he's revealing to us. All right, so though they were doing right, if you look, look at 13. They were holding fast, holding fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even the days of Antimus, which I'm very happy. I'm not sure which translation you have. But it says, Antipas, my wit, my, you said martyr, right? Mm -hmm. Mine says witness, but again, we've said those are both English translations of the same word in Greek, which we use the word martyr. Um, and again, because it's so good to be Orthodox, we know who Antipas is. Um, I, I gave you a little bit of a, of a hint, or I did not hint, a, a little bit of research for you. Uh, Saint Antipas, the martyr Antipas, is commemorated April 11th. So let's see. Let's involve some of you at home. Coley, do you have your, your phone on you or a computer? Yes, Father. Can you go to the OCA.org website? And near the top, you're going to see, and those of you at home can follow on your computer if you want, um, you're going to see where it says Feasts and Saints. Click on that and then go to April 11th while he's doing that. Um, one of the reasons it's going to be orthodox is we understand that what we're hearing in the Bible is not separate from the rest of the history of Christianity. Most Christians, especially Protestant Christians, see the Bible as one thing and then their involvement in the church as another, and don't they rarely connect up who we are today as a church to the church of the Bible. So, for example, they don't know that the Samaritan woman gets the name Fotini. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? She has the conversation with her, and that's all they know about her. She was, they don't even know her name. We know that she's given the name Fotini, meaning the enlightened one, and that she goes on to be a great preacher of the gospel. Um, one will end up calling equal to the apostles because she goes out and preaches to lots and lots of people. So in other words, that story that we read in the scripture goes on. There's another one. If you're not Orthodox or perhaps Catholic, you hear Antipas, and you're like, well, I don't know who that is, and you go on. So, Subdeacon, have you found April 11th? We're getting there. Okay. We've got, it in the, we've got it in the prologue of Okra. Oh, that's fine. You can read it from there, too. Hang on just a second, though. Linda has a question. I just, it has nothing to do with 
and do it while I'm reading. Okay. But back to the rapid sprint. Yeah. So when I was reading this before this started, I took it to be Jesus mm -hmm. speaking. But then why are why are you asking who is speaking this? So when we say Jesus, that's our interpretation. If you look back in chapter one, nowhere does it say this person standing here is Jesus. You won't find that. So then, but why is it written in red? I mean, so the, the writing in red, that's a, that's a publisher decision. It's not in, it was not, you know, when they were writing the Gospels, they didn't switch ink when they got to words of Jesus. That's a modern uh, technique that the publishers use. It's not part of the, the scriptures as they were written. It's nice. It's a nice feature. There's nothing wrong with it. But when, if, I, if I say to you, who said that? and you say Jesus, number one, we're using only our interpretation, which assumes it's Jesus, which I think is a safe assumption based on what the text says. But then we, if we say, oh, it's Jesus, then we lose out on what the text is telling us, which is it's the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So it's important to really get what the text is trying to tell us about who's speaking. Yes, we know through interpretation this is Jesus, but there's, there's more to be learned as we're about to hear that this two-edged sword, the whole letter here is saying basically, because I speak with a two-edged sword, for some of you, it's for your salvation. Some of you are faithful, like Antipas. Some of you, it's for your condemnation, because they didn't accept it. And by the way, it's not Christians and non-Christians, which is why I said, just because we're Orthodox doesn't mean we get the pat on the back and we're doing fine. <laughs> so we're, we'll get to that. But that's, that's so the red, don't be confused on, it's just some Bibles have it, some don't. Yeah. All right, Coley, using the book, yes. what, what, do you, what can you tell us about St. Antipas the Martyr? Uh, the inhabitants of the city of Pergamum lived in darkness of idolatry and extreme impurity. In this, and living among them, and you're still there? Yep. Okay, sorry, you're, you disappeared for us. But I'll go ahead and keep reading. In the midst of the city uh, lived Antipas as a light in the midst of darkness, as a rose among thorns, and as gold in the mire. The pagan priest assembled a large number of people against Antipas and interrogated him, trying to force him to deny Christ and worship idols. Antipas said to them, when your so-called gods, lords of the universe, are frightened of me, a mortal man, and must flee from this city, do you not recognize by this that your faith is a delusion? The saints spoke to them further about the Christian faith as the one true saving faith. They became as enraged as wild beasts and dragged the aged Antipas to the temple of Artemis, before which stood an ox cast in bronze. They heated the bronze ox and hurl the servant of God inside. From within the fiery ox, St. Antipas glorified God with thanksgiving like Jonah in the belly of the whale, or the three youths in the fiery furnace. Antipas prayed for his flock and for the entire world until his soul parted from his weakened body and ascended okay. among the angels into the kingdom of Christ. He died in torments and was crowned with unfading glory in the year 92.
I'm trying to get the screw back. Share screen. Are we supposed to hear anything right now? Father, I'm sorry, know. I thought I was muting somebody else and I muted us. <laughs> sorry about that, David. <laughs> um, go ahead, actually, Linda was just reading a footnote on the two-edged sword, so go back to that, Linda. Yeah. yeah. The sharp two-edged sword is the Lord's two-edged message of terror to some, and of joy to others, just judgment of God. Okay, so that two-edged sword, it's, like I said, it's for the salvation, for some in condemnation, not that Christ came to condemn, as he tells us, but for those who don't follow um, and don't not just say they live, but live by it, it is, it is uh, it's condemnation. So it's judgment. Think of that as judgment, as to, to summarize it. Father, did you hear anything that I read? We heard everything. Oh, good. Yeah, sorry, we thanked you, but I was on mute when I thanked you. <laughs> <laughs> then I made some really, really important comments. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what you were, but... <laughs> I think basically I was just saying that there's a connection between uh, what we, as Orthodox, read in the Bible what we as Orthodox um, see happening, continuing in the lives of the saints up to our present day where those same standards are applied to us. Um, and so when you see Antipas mentioned, if you're not Orthodox or you know, perhaps Catholic, it's just a name. You don't know what the name means or why it's important. But for us, it's very important because he's part of our continuing uh, community. Okay. Um, he was Antipas, the faithful witness or martyr, same word in Greek, who was killed among you or Satan dwells. So that's what St. John is saying they have in their favor. All right. But he says, but I have a few things against you. There are some of you that hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And I meant to look up this reference. I confess I forgot to do that. Um, let's see if there's a reference in the text. That's 14. Uh, yeah, if I remember right, Balaam was a prophet, but there were issues with him. I can't remember what they were. Anybody remember what the issues were with Balaam in the Old Testament? Yeah, and if I remember right, he was considered a prophet of the people, so it wasn't like he was from the outside. Um, I'll have to go back and check that later. But anyway, so that's that's the reference. But it put a stumbling block, okay? And what's the stumbling block? That it's not actually faithful to God, okay? And we're going to find out another stumbling block comes from the outside, I think, in the next church. Um that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. Does any translation have it differently? Sexual immorality? Okay. 
Yeah, some will we'll translate it that way depending on the view. Um, Right. Yeah, we're going to hear that a couple of different times in the letters. Let me just check the word here. If it's what I think it is, it's very interesting. Um, da, 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 da. Yeah, when it says eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication, this is what this translation says. Um, the Greek or the Greek word is um, pornevse. Pornevse. What does that remind you of? Fornication. Pornography. Okay. So pornography is a big issue in the current age because of the internet and all that stuff that, that is out there on that. But the problem is not a new problem. Okay. And it's important to see now, and we're going to see it more as never mentioned and coming up in, I think at the next church, that sexual immorality, yes, it's wrong and it's immoral. But one of the reasons it's so immoral is that it is the perversion of what sexual morality is supposed to be. All right. So in our wedding service, um, especially when we talk about the epistle, but all the wedding service as a whole, what do we say about what the image of a married man and woman Christ in the church. Okay. Uh, Alan, if you could mute your mic for us, there's some kind of, probably those nice sunny breezes down in Florida. <laughs> Alan's got I'm in the car. Oh, you're in the car. I'm going to mute you. Don't worry. Hold on. If you want to say something, uh, yeah, you'll have to unmute your mic. Yeah, <laughs> difference is blink twice. I'm going to mute you, but you'll have to unmute if you want to say something. Anyway, um, what are we talking about? Oh, so if marriage is a, is a reflection of the love between Christ and the church, or God and his people, then sexual immorality, one of the reasons why it's so wrong is it perverts that image. And so immorality or pornea or, or, or any version of, of that root word, one of the horrible things is it says we're being unfaithful. Okay, the lack of faithfulness. Now, if you're a single person and you commit pornea or some kind of sexual morality, you're being unfaithful either to Christ, to whom you're dedicated in your celibacy, or to your future spouse. But either way, it's a lack of faithfulness. If you're married and you commit sexual immorality outside your marriage, obviously it's, it's unfaithfulness. But it's the unfaithfulness that's the key part there. Because we're going to see that faithfulness to Christ is the core issue that this book is talking about. Faithfulness even in the face of potential martyrdom. That this faithfulness cannot have conditions. It can't have when it's easy, when, it's, when we feel like it. It's faithfulness at every time. As, and you can see here where he's telling the church of Pergamum, you're faithful in this sense, that Antipas, when his time came, he was a faithful martyr, a faithful witness. But this have things against you, that some who told the teachings of Balaam, again, this wrong teaching, um, put a stomach lock for the people that they might eat food sacrifices and to practice immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about them before, this other sort of secret group of people with secret teaching. And then he gets to the solution. 
Verse 16, repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember that two-edged sword? What a judgment. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden madden. I will give him white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now let's go back to re repent for a moment. I wanted to share something with you from that. Um, here we go. This is from St. Jerome. Uh, let us show from the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, that repentance unaccompanied by baptism ought to be allowed valid in the case of heretics. It is imputed to the angel of Ephesus that he has forsaken his first love. In the angel of the church of Pergamum, the eating of idol sacrifices is censured, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And I won't go on, there is more there, but in both the idea of eating of sacrifices to idols and sexual immorality, what's the common theme among them both? Unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. If you're offering eating food sacrifice to idols, that's part of worship of another god, you're being unfaithful to the true god. If you're being unfaithful sexually, you're not, you're not reflecting faithfulness to the God who gives his commandments to us. So faithfulness is the key, is the key issue there. Well, I think it's interesting that you just made the comment that if you're single, you're immoral. You said something about you're unfaithful to your future spouse. Maybe. Either yourself, because in the church, you're either single and you're, dedicate, you're dedicating your celibacy to God and you're faithful to him. Now, some people get, get really surprised when you talk to nuns. They talk about Christ as their groom. Christ my groom. Now, it's not in the weird sense that people might take it in. It means that they've dedicated their whole life to their faithfulness to Christ. To the, just like a faithful wife would to her husband. Um, or, perhaps, if one is going to get married in the future, as we, we grow up and now you're, you, know, you have choices to make, but you choose to be faithful, one of the person you're being faithful to is the spouse that you may have met, but don't know he's going to be your spouse or she's going to be your spouse. Or maybe you haven't met them. But either way, at some point, you're supposed to show up having been faithful to them, even though you may not have known them. Yeah, a lot of us, we, we struggle with morality. Morality is always a good thing, but morality in a Christian sense is very different than any other morality. It's not morality to a code. It's not saying I'm going to be good because these things are good, these things are bad. It's faithfulness to the one who gives us those commandments. Why? As a way to live our faithfulness. They're not good in and of themselves. They're good because they show and give us the opportunity to be faithful to Christ. I mean, we're glad for morality where it exists, and especially in a world where it's becoming undervalued. But even when we do share the values, for example, um, let's say a, a non-Christian says that, um, you know, you should only be intimate with somebody in marriage. But they're not a Christian. They don't believe it. We're happy that they see that. But it's very different than what we would see as the reasons for it. And they wouldn't understand it because they don't believe in the one that they're being called to be faithful to. 
Whereas for, for us, that's the only reason. Because let's say, let's say you're, you're a Christian, let's say you're an Orthodox Christian, and you try to do the right thing and you do it. You do it just because, it's, because you decide, you accept that it's the right thing to do. What could happen in a negative sense? Yeah, let's say you do it, you, you decide it's the right thing to do, and you do it. I did the right thing. Period. You can get proud. Oh, that's true. Because you take God out of the equation. And this is something I would say that as, as all of us are trying to be pious Orthodox, maybe we don't struggle with some temptations that others do. For a lot of us, this is our temptation. Pride. Which the church is always seen as the mother of all the sins. So we, we pat ourselves on the back for not doing other things. Meanwhile, we're being unfaithful to Christ in the most important way that you need to be faithful. Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. I think it's this Sunday, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Is that exactly. similar to, because you often hear people talk who either are Christians but don't have a definite, don't live necessarily a Christian life right. in our sense, mm -hmm. but, or um, are non-Christians, but they have this belief that as long as you're kind and nice and do, it doesn't yes. matter, but they have no connection. Right. As long as you're a good person. Right. As long as you're a good right. person. Right. And that you According to whom? Yeah. Right. To ourselves. My definition of good person. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's tricky because we want to... Morality is good. It's just not enough. Morality for morality's sake is not enough. And morality for morality's sake can actually be bad. Can be. Better than immorality in some ways, but in some ways it could bring a destructiveness, especially within the church. I would say that within the church it's the most destructive because here in the midst of the church where Christ is supposed to be ruling, where he is supposed to be the bridegroom and we're the bride, to have um, a lack of focus on faithfulness to him within the church is really bad, which is exactly what we're reading about. What we're going to read, these are letters not to seven cities or towns or countries, seven churches. And each one, he's going to say, here's where you're doing it right. That's fine. And I have this against you. You know, I think this is a, a reason why this is such an important book to understand is it's a book written to Christians as a message of hope in one sense, but also as a warning to say that you don't get to decide what is okay and not okay. I mean, on that final judgment day, everyone is going to understand that our opinion doesn't matter at all. In an instant, we're all going to be brought to that horrifying reality that what I think about myself or someone else doesn't matter. There's only one opinion that's going to matter, and he's the one with that two-edged sword. Get over yourself. Very good. Every one of us, we got to get over ourselves, which is exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I've got a few things against you, and if you don't do it, which are really hard things. He's saying, or I will come to you soon and war against them. I mean, imagine that. That the Lord, the Son of Man, Christ, the Savior, is coming to war against who? Against some of the so-called Christians. The one, the one thing that I struggle with um, on ads on television and, and many times the people that, that you know and you talk to, it's like, Oh, you deserve this, or 
I get everything that you deserve. And I said, right. I got everything that I deserve. I've been sitting in hell right there now. There you go. And I said, there was my sister once. And she said, oh, no, you can't talk like that. It's not the way. I never want to hear you talk like that again. I'm right. Because they see it as a hopelessness. Right. That if we don't have hope in ourselves, we're hopeless. We have hope. It's just not in ourselves if so, we're smart. So it always bothers me when I go, oh, you really deserve that. I'm like, yeah. No, no I don't deserve it. It's McDonald's knew what they were doing. You deserve a break today. <laughs> right. Remember that? I mean, whatever it is, you know, it's like, if I got what I deserve, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here right now. Right. We're in the liturgy when you said, when you ask for forgiveness because you're the chief sinner. Yes. That's me. Yes. What's the last little dialogue just before we start to receive communion? So actually, before the clergy start to receive communion, the, the deacon says, let us attend. And the priest or the bishop says, holy things are for the holy. And what's the response? We have our prayer. What's the response of the people? One is holy. One is holy. And it ain't us. <laughs> you know, let us attend. A deacon doesn't say that very often. When he says let us attend, it's like pay attention. This is important. Wake up. You got you spacing out. Come back here. Let us attend. Holy things are for the holy. And if we're not paying attention, we go, oh, good. It's almost my time to receive communion. Even if I'm a little bit sorry for my sins, but it's and we are it's tight to line up and everything. One is holy. One is Lord, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. So we all line up, not because we're holy, not because we're worthy, in spite of the fact that we're not. And then what does the deacon say before, before you all come to communion? What does he say to you? How does he invite you to the chalice? I can't usually hear all the words. With the fear of God, <laughs> with faith, and with love. Not with worthiness. I mean, hopefully preparation. We don't disregard it, it's important, but with fear of God, with faith. There's a prayer, it's actually not a prayer, it's an admonition of St. Basil to the priest that he says, there's a whole series of things that the priest is supposed to do before the liturgy, one of which is a whole service of preparation for communion. And it starts with, beware, O man, for you approach fire. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, we've got a lot of images in this last sentence. Let's take them one by one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What's manna? Uh, Bread. So you remember in the, in the Old Testament when the people were in the wilderness and they were starving, Moses prayed and bread, bread-like substance, rained down. They, they were out, it was out on the ground. They could go out in the morning. And how much were they allowed to collect? One day's worth. Okay. As much as they were starving, they were hungry, collect one day's worth. And if they collected more than that, what happened to it? They rotted. Okay. What's the, re, what's the purpose there? What's God doing? Yeah, he's saying, trust in me. I'll give it to you every day. I'll give you what you need. You take what I give you in, in, in faithfulness and faith. Exactly, right. Okay, so if that's the Old Testament manna, what do you think the hidden manna is? 
To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Is it the Eucharist? Yeah. The Eucharist. So the new manna, or we might call the hidden manna, because you can't see it. You see bread. It was a long conversation this week on one of my Facebook groups for clergy. And if the questions and things we're not sure how to handle, somebody will bring it up. And one of the brothers brought up, what do you do with a parishioner who's an alcoholic and recovering, who has a sponsor that says, if you receive communion, there's wine, you're breaking your sobriety. So he's asking for opinions on how to, how to deal with this. Anyway, and the whole, the whole conversation was like, let's not wine. I mean, you know, it's the blood of Christ. But we don't see that. You see bread, you see wine. So it's hidden in that sense. What's that? Right, exactly. Right. So to him who conquers, what does it mean to conquer? What are they conquering? Right. Whatever the temptation is to be unfaithful, if you don't give into it, you've overcome. And to him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. All right. I will give him a white stone. There's all, if you Google this at home, you're going to see all the different interpretations there might be for this. It's not really all that hard. I mean, there's a lot of possible interpretations. Um, what stones might be considered white? Alabaster is one. What's alabaster used for? What's that? Could be statues, could be honoring something. You know, you have a nice jar, you have an alabaster jar or something precious, okay? Somebody else said it online. Another white stone. What was it? A pearl is not really a stone. Well, it's not really a stone, I guess. Technically it isn't, but if you're, you know, most people would say well, it's, it's a stone. So it's a pearl. That's one interpretation. I think it's probably a good one. Um, or a diamond. Would a diamond be thought of a as diamond. a white? Yeah. Let's go back to the pearl for a second. If it's a pearl, what might the meaning be? Uh, through what adversity. What's through that? adversity, you're, you are formed. Yeah. Where have we heard the word pearl used, in the, especially in the New Testament? The pearl of great price. Great price. What was the pearl of great price? It was a man who wants to, you know, he finds this pearl of great price in a field. And he sells all that he has, we can buy that field to get that pearl. Now, again, this is, think of the setting. St. John writing to this church under threat of martyrdom, under temptation of unfaithfulness to false teachings and other practices. And here, who honk, conquers, I will give a white stone, the pearl of great price. Could be a diamond. Some people say it's a, the word there, white, could mean bright, brilliant. Could be, a, it's precious. In other words, you're you're conquering something, which in the world sense looks like you're giving you're you're losing out, but actually you're getting something very valuable. And if you go on, there's there's a dozen other interpretations of what it might mean. Some people talk about that in in Rome, if you want to enter to a, enter a big event, you didn't print out tickets, you handed out um, what was the word for them? Um, tessera, they were called. And it's just a, some kind of a stone that signified you were allowed to come into this event. That's another possible interpretation. All of them, though, are rewards for faithfulness and something of value. And then what else do you get after the white stone? Verse 17. A new name, a new name written on the stone which no one knows 
except him who receives it. What's the new name? There's a couple other possibilities, couple possibilities. I'll read you a couple of these. I'll let you guess first though. Well, what says, uh, a new identity with when we're baptized as Orthodox, what are we given? A new name. A new name. <laughs> so it's a, signif it's a signifying that your name is new. Now that's not, it wasn't new to baptism. In the Old Testament, Abraham, Ab Abram becomes Abraham. Saul becomes Paul. Um, um, Simon becomes Peter. Sarai becomes Sarah. So that's not a new thing. But the, the new name is an idea of a new identity. And that's, um, there's another interpretation, which I think is the same way, but said it differently. Um, this comes from, um, who is this, Primatius. I will give him a white stone that is the adoption of the sons of God. The stone is a precious gem and may be understood as similar to that pearl that the merchant found and valued as equal to all his possessions which he sold. And upon this stone is a new name, that is the name of Christian. For which reason we read, and you shall be called by a new name which the Lord, the mouth of the Lord will give. And besides baptism, I, I mention also martyrdom, which no one knows except him who receives it. So all of them different, sort of different interpretations, but really all connected. Whether it's the new name you get as a saint's name of baptism, whether it's the name of Christian, whether it's in martyrdom where others don't understand, you're not they're not receiving it because they think they're killing you and they think they're winning. You've received the name of Christian or the name of Christ or the new baptismal name. And you know that by your death, by your seeming defeat, you're being victorious. So not so mysterious. Yeah, go online. You'll see how a lot of people debate these endlessly. What's the, what's the new name? What's the white stone? Any questions on that section? All right. Let's go on. We have, eh, we got some time. Let's keep going. Who would like to read? Um, 18 to 29. You want everybody to jump on? I know. Jesus. Oh, okay. Go for it. <laughs> and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Lord, or says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immor immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, 
and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Not to you, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps his works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. As I also... Uh, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the, the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Who's speaking? The angel of the church of Thyria. Who is he? Keep reading. Yeah. It's the same it's, answer. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not? No. The Son of God. The words of the Son of God. All right. In the Roman Empire, who was the Son of God? The Emperor. Emperor. Caesar was the Son of God. This is a different version of who the Son of God is. We already saw, again, it's the same figure we saw back in chapter one. Um, yeah. Okay. And what do we know about him? He has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. All right. What does Superman do with his eyes? <laughs> he can see through things, right? Remember... Um, Who's the actor, the TV one? He'd go, look down. Well, there were two of them. One of them were little kids. Yeah. <laughs> little kryptonite took care of him. George. George Reeves, was yes. it? Yeah. And then yeah. George Reeves. He was the first one. Yeah. George Reeves and Christopher Reeve, yeah. yeah. Really? Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so the eyes of Flame of Fire, he can see. He can see really clearly, much more than people who don't have eyes of a Flame of Fire, and we're going to see. In the middle of this, what he sees, he sees the mind and the heart. And his feet are like burnished bronze. What is burnished bronze like? It's very hard. Okay, we're going to see that with that strength, he's going to be able to give people the ability to crush nations like earthen pots broken to pieces. All right. Now, we heard early on, was it Ephesus that, that lost their first love? it was in this one he knows their works their love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first well, they're doing better than Ephesus in this thing in that sense but I have this against you, you tolerate the woman Jezebel anybody remember where Jezebel was in the Old Testament I had to refresh my memory yes she was the queen she was the wife of Ahab right and what was she known for you call, we'll, we'll call people, you're a Jezebel. <laughs> well, that's what I was, I looked up for it. I could not find. Coley, do you remember anything in the story about sexual morality? I don't, Father. All I remember is the fact that she hated everything that had to do with Elijah and anything that had to do with God. She wanted to be, and her husband wanted to rule without the consent of God. Right. And what, what she is known for, although sort of, 
what we remember her for is somehow being very immoral. And it's interesting based on what we were saying earlier, what she's known for is she, she was not of the people. She was a Phoenician that he married as part of this political alliance. Um, but she was known for replacing the worship of the true God among the people with false gods from her people. Yes. And she seduces her husband uh, to, to go along with all that. So, again, think about adultery and fornication, all those sexual things. You're going to see why they're so bad, because they show what, what unfaithfulness looks like. And so she practices immorality, sexual immorality, food sacrifice idols, both symbols or signs of, of faithfulness, not being faithful. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. And there's a really powerful image of uh, immorality as unfaithfulness, that they're going to they're gonna be with her, they'll be intimate with her, and that's going to cause her sinfulness to, to spread. And they're going to be in great tribulation unless they repent. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I missed something. When we started this, what were we talking about? The emperor of the Roman Empire? He was called the son of God in, in Rome. In Rome, but and what does it have to do with this one? So verse 18, who is speaking to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So that's who speaking? Mm -hmm. The emperor. No. No, Jesus. No, so the emperor is the false son of God. He called himself that, but obviously he wasn't the real son of God. Okay, so he, but Jesus is really speaking. Right. To the emperor. No. No, to the church. To the church. Okay, well then where does the emperor come in? If that everyone knew that if you said the son of God, you, they knew you were talking about the emperor. And, and so is this. Who stole the yeah. title son of God. It wasn't okay, his proper name. Okay, yeah. good. Good. Okay, um, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches mind and heart. How is he able to do that? His x-ray <laughs> He has the eyes like a flame of fire. I'm going to push this in you to get your answers from the text. Okay, it's not a scary scene. He's not a monster. He's not Godzilla. He has the eyes of flame and fire, which are there. Why? So he searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. So where do our works come from? Our mind and our heart. Yeah. Which is why our works are um, so bad, because they don't, they're not just action. People say, oh, I just did that. Well, it, where, did, where did it come from? It comes from the heart. When we get closer towards Lent, we're going to hear a lot of, of the scripture about fasting, that it, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles us, it's what comes out of the mouth, because it comes from the heart. And that's what defiles us. Uh, let's see. Again, he who conquers and keeps my works, when? Verse 26. Until the end. Until the end. So when we start seeing things about the end, put it in the context of the end is only important because you've got to be faithful until the end. 
That's what's important about it. It's not the fact that we know what it's coming or it's not, you know, we can predict the date. What's important is that we got to be faithful until that time. That's the key thing about why the end is important. You'll hear a lot of people every year say, oh, we're predicting that the second coming is coming on March 25th because of this. Exactly, right? To us, it doesn't matter. I think we mentioned early on that a lot of churches even split over interpretation of, we'll hear about this thousand-year reign of Christ in the world. When that was, does he come at the end of the thousand years? Does he come in the middle? Is there no thousand years? And they discussed it and divided over it. It doesn't matter. As long as you're faithful until the end, that's the only thing that matters. Um, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Earth and pots are broken in pieces. Um, so all images of power. Now, we hear it. It's beautiful to hear it. we got to keep putting it in context. These are people who are under threat by the most powerful force the world ever knew. The Empire of Rome. And here he's saying, if you hold fast, you're going to break them along with me because I've got my feet of, of burnished bronze. Um, and you'll break them like, like earthen pots. Any questions on any of that? Father, it just reminds me that, you know, like when we read about a lot of the martyrs, um, that it was through their uh, crucifixion or th through their suffering that um, some of the actual torture, torturers are even converted. So that would be kind of an example, I think, of how those images of power around them are uh, destroyed by the power of Christ through the testimony. Exactly, exactly. Yep. Um, we made this point really briefly early on, but I want to go back and, and make it again at this point. Um, who is the letter written to? Go back to Angel the of the verse church. 18. What's that? The angel of the church in theater. The angel of the church, okay, which we said that these are all letters to the angel of the church, which we said we can't define. A couple of the most likely answers are knowing that angel is messenger. It could be an angel, but more likely it's a messenger of that church, which we made the point early on to say that the messenger of every church is the bishop. His main job is to deliver God's word whole and intact from what he has received from the bishops that consecrated him to the churches he leads that he will pass on when he consecrates a bishop uh, after him. Now, if that's the case, which we would say is, is most likely what that, what that word means, listen to this commentary. This is from Caesarius, uh, who says, He is speaking to the leaders of the churches who failed to impose the severity of ecclesiastical discipline upon the extravagant and the fornicator and those who do whatever other kinds of evil. It is possible this also refers to heretics, who calls herself a prophetess, he's quoting. In other words, it's Jezebel, whoever she was, whether it's named Jezebel or not, doesn't matter. It's the imagery, it's important. Um, she calls herself a prophetess, that is, a Christian, for many heresies flatter themselves with this name. In other words, heresy doesn't show itself to be heresy 
It doesn't declare itself to be heresy. It declares itself as true teaching. And heretics spread their false teaching, calling it the truth. Um, so he's basically saying that these messages are principally to the bishops. And it's their job to hold on to, to, that, uh, to that teaching, uh, hold it intact, and then to overcome any obstacles. Any questions? All right, then we'll stop there. Somebody remind me if I forget that we are at the end of chapter two, right? We'll start at chapter three. The morning star, yes. I was going to share something about that. Let's see. Yeah, this is from, uh, from Tychonius. It is appropriate that we understand the morning star to represent both Christ and the first resurrection because his appearance scatters the darkness of error and the worldly shadows of the night are put to flight by the approaching resurrection. For as this star brings an end to the night, so also does it mark the beginning of the day. So you think about the morning star. It's the one that you see still very brightly but it's the morning star because you already know day is coming. So it's sort of like the herald of the new day. And we mentioned that Christ is the faithful martyr. In other words, and he's the first and the last. He's the one who's going to begin, but it's, and he'll end it. But in between the beginning and the end is all of us called to be faithful. Oh, Alan has his hand up. Let me, let me unmute you, Alan. I was testing it. Can you hear oh, me? We can hear you. I'm getting off. All right. Thanks for joining. What's the weather like? 83, partly sunny. Nice. Hot on, partly sunny. <laughs> you hide in those, in those uh, cloud shadows. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I figured it out finally. I got on about 1020, I think. Good job. <laughs> Take care. Bye, Ellen. Bye, everybody. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Footnote here too, the last sentence of that says the phrase may also refer to eternal life in a share in the reign of God of Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we always see Christ's resurrection as important because he's the first. We call him the firstborn from the dead. For Christ to rise, it's really meaningless unless we're going to follow him into our resurrection. So he's always seen as the one leading. So that morning star, the image is, is it's, it's, he's showing the way, he's leading us, he's the first, but he's inviting us to follow. So what we receive... Uh, we're going to receive exactly what he received. Now, on this sense, the morning star is nice and beautiful and lovely. We receive resurrection, right? But what did he get before his resurrection? And so, right. And so will possibly us. And he remains faithful. Exactly. Which he's telling us, remain faithful, no matter what. Uh, God willing. If he doesn't come back first. <laughs> if he doesn't come back first, that's our goal.
Well, it should, it should always, there should be an element of fear, but within the context of confidence in God. We should be afraid that our response is not adequate. That's good and healthy. Because if you're afraid and you say, well, I'm not enough, I'm not ready yet, but he is a faithful witness, what does it lead us to do? Pray more, trust more, obey more submit more, work harder, all those things which are all good for us. If, if we are afraid and we go away from God, that's a sign that we're also being unfaithful to him because we're not seeing in him the one that he is the Savior. He does have the power. He does give us the strength we need. So it's always in the church you have two sides of one coin, so to speak, as the, the sort of... Um, ideas of what we think are two different ends of sin. On the one end, we could say, well, we could have the sin of pride. We are so good. We're so important. We don't need God. On the other side, we, we think is despair. Despair is, I'm no good. Nothing is good. It's all terrible. What the church fathers teach us is that pride and despair are two sides of the same coin because both deny the centrality of God and our service to him. When we have that, we recognize on the one hand that we're not enough, but he is, and so we trust in him, and we try to be more faithful to him. We repent of our sins, but it keeps us from being prideful to think we don't need him. So always, he's, the, he's always the solution. That's the key. And without him, we're going to go wrong. Whether it's on one end or the other, we're going in the wrong direction. And they're both wrong. And they both don't lead us to salvation, whereas faith in him does. All right. God willing, we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. You all.